Hello and welcome to this episode of The Nudge. Today I'll be chatting about the psychology behind segments like millennials and discussing how valuable they may or may not be. I'm joined again by Richard Shotton for this discussion. Richard is the author of The Choice Factory, the best-selling book on applying behaviour science to advertising. It contains 25 biases that most consumers fall foul to. Learn them and you'll learn how to effectively influence your market. Richard and I started this discussion by chatting about something we hear often from marketing gurus. It's the idea that consumers are constantly changing. But is it true? Are the millennials of today drastically different from the baby boomers of the 60s? I'll hand over to Richard to start the discussion. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Um, so, so I think the first thing you mentioned was around this idea that is prevalent in marketing of consumers in 2019 being very different from they were 10, 15, 30 years ago. and I think a lot of the evidence from social psychology would dispute that, that of course there have been societal change, of course there have been technological changes, of course there have been economic changes, but the fundamental motivations of people are remarkably similar. Um, there's a lovely Birnbeck quote along the lines of, um, you know, it, it's taken millions of years for human nature to develop, it'll take millions of years for it to vary. It's fashionable to talk about the changing man, but as communicators, we should be concerned with the unchanging man. Now, Birnbeck's timescale might be a bit skew if there, but the core point that he makes, the, the underlying motivations that people have, whether it's for status or uh, to appeal to others or, or to protect their family, those things are fundamentally uh, the same as they were and one of the reasons for writing the book really was that I, people kept on talking about the changing consumer and what I wanted to show was that the experiments that psychologists have done back you know as far back as the 1890s still work today just as strongly 
uh, as, as they did back then. So one of the big motivations for writing the book was to try and show that the findings from psychology are still relevant today, even if they were done 50 or 100 years ago. Behavioural science consistently shows that consumers today, whether they be millennials or not, still behave pretty similarly to those of 50 to even 100 years ago. Yes, much about the consumer's environment has changed, but fundamentally the makeup of their brain is still the same. Richard Shotton explains this eloquently in his book. He references a story that almost all psychologists will know. The death of Kitty Genovese. Now, Kitty's story is pretty bleak. At 3.20am, March 13th, 1964, she was walking home. A few yards before getting to her door, a man approached and plunged a knife into her back. Now, deaths in New York in 1964 weren't very rare, but this specific case shocked the city. Why? Because for half an hour, 38 law-abiding New York citizens heard Kitty get attacked and subsequently murdered. Yet none of these 38 people called the police. While the newspapers took this as proof that people of the 60s were less humane than ever, psychologists took a different view. They believed that no one intervened because of the sheer volume of witnesses. Everybody assumed someone else would call the police, so they didn't bother picking up the phone themselves. It's called the bystander effect. It's since been proven in more recent studies. For example, you're less likely to investigate smoke coming from a nearby room if you're sitting with a group of strangers. The effect is over 50 years old now, but would it still apply to the millennials of today? Richard would argue it does. In 2018, he was attempting to improve the NHS Give Blood campaign. You may have heard me reference this on a, on a previous podcast. Essentially, the NHS's ads weren't specific enough. They claimed that blood stocks were low across the UK, but Richard feared viewers wouldn't notice them because they weren't directed at a specific audience. Essentially, the ads were suffering from this same bystander effect. So Richard edited the ads to specifically appeal to the viewer. Instead of the ad saying stocks are low across the UK, they would say stocks are low in the specific location the viewer was in, whether that was London, Manchester or Birmingham, for example. That 50-year-old rule still applies today. Even with the smartphones and the social networks and everything that's different today, that rule still applied. And perhaps this shows that consumers really haven't changed much at all. I'll let Richard talk about another experiment he looked at in his book and how it's still prevalent today. Often what we do in the book is sometimes we do completely new experiments. Sometimes uh, they are twists on existing experiments. And the, and the existing experiment that that was based on was one by um, Dahlia and Batson, two Princeton psychologists. And they did this wonderful experiment back in 1973 where they recruited 40 training priests. And they said to them, look, what we want you to do is go five minutes walk down the road to a uh, nearby church and you're going to go and give a, a sermon. But the experiment begins as those priests are leaving and what Bats and Dali did was say to them just as they're about to leave half of them were told oh gosh you're running late you better hurry they're expecting you five minutes ago the other group were told oh you're a bit early but you might as well head head on down there you can hang around till they're ready for you so first group are put in a rush second group are in the um, low hurry condition and then as those people are walking to the church, the psychologists have got one of their colleagues 
to act as a, a kind of stooge and he's pretending to have breathing difficulties so he's slumped up against a wall and the real experiment was what proportion of people would stop and help that man and what the psychologist found was that when people are in a rush only about 10 percent of them stopped whereas when they had plenty of time 63 percent of them stopped i think that's a really significant finding essentially people who are part of a very specific socio-economic group in this case priests acted extremely differently when the context was changed. When they took their time, 64% of priests helped, but when they were in a rush, only 10% helped. I'm sure that most of us would assume that priests in general probably react and act in similar ways, but they don't. Their behaviour changes dramatically based on the context. So why, as marketers, should we ever assume that a group like millennials would act and react in the same way with our ads, especially when they're far less specific than a group like priests? I'll pass back to Richard, who goes on to explain why it is so difficult to group people by their attributes or their job role. Now, what was interesting was that the psychologists beforehand had also questioned people about their motivations for going into uh, the church. You know, was it that they were there to glorify God or was it to help their fellow man? And they found that those personality attributes had no meaningful, no significant effect on whether people stopped or not. There were a lot of people said that they were doing it to help other people. That was not an indicator of whether they'd stop and help but whether they're in a rush or not uh, was a much better guide. Now, when people were asked to estimate what they thought would be the uh, most important effect, most people assumed it would be the personality metric and that whether they were in a rush would have minimal effect. So what Laura McLean and I did was um, in 2016, we created a thought experiment, a much simpler one, just to look at see if that error of estimation about people's behavior still stood so we said to people i gave them this story about someone being slumped and uh ill and we said who do you think is more likely to stop someone who is generous in a rush or someone who is not so generous but has plenty of time and people overwhelmingly thought it would be the personality eight to one percent of people thought it was the per the the the, the, the appropriate personality that would stop only 19% thought it would be uh, someone who had much more time. Now, what Barley and, uh, sorry, Darley and Batson uh, define this as, they call it the fundamental attribution error. And that has two main aspects. Firstly, that context is phenomenally important in shaping behavior. But above and beyond that is that we tend to underestimate the importance of context. And I think that underestimation occurs still in marketing today. Context is clearly more important than we'd initially suspect. Yet very few marketers seem to think about the context their messages will be seen in. In fact, these findings suggest that context actually outweighs the consumer's social economic group when it comes to decision making. Fundamentally, consumers are more likely to notice your ad if they're not in a rush, regardless of whether they're a millennial or not. And a more recent study from Fred Bronner links nicely with this fact. In 2007, Fred asked 1,287 participants to read through a newspaper. He then asked them which of the ads they remembered. Unlike most recall tests, he categorised the results by the reader's mood. 
Those in a positive or good mood noticed 56% of the ads. Those in a negative mood noticed just 36%. This finding is staggering because in this scenario, mood seemed to be the biggest driver for ad recall regardless of whether the ad was targeted at a male or female, millennials or even a priest. The key driver for recall was a person's mood, not their attributes. Because one of the things people often say is, oh, well, isn't this kind of rather obvious? And what you think is, well, it doesn't matter whether when we are sitting just in a podcast or when we're having an intellectual debate or, sorry, that's a bit high for losing, but you know, when we're having an uh, abstract debate, it might seem obvious. But what matters is, is that insight being used on a day-to-day basis? And I think the best test of that, one that has quite a definitive answer is, think back, if you work at an agency or you work in a marketing department, think back to all the briefs you either create or receive. Now, I would wager every single one of those briefs has a target audience on it. But what proportion has a target context, you know, a round era, maybe one or 2%. So even if people say theoretically that they believe this, they're not acting on it in their uh, kind of day-to-day, day-to-day life. Uh, I think the second way of maybe seeing that this problem is think of something like um, programmatic advertising. Hugely important area, uh, growing massively. But the way it's currently used is often to commoditize people. So we kind of think, well, an ABC, one woman is the same, whatever circumstance she's in. A CEO is the same, whatever circumstance they're in. It's the audience that matters. And therefore, we're going to buy that audience um, uh, regardless of, of, of where they are. Now, the danger with that is what it often means is you reach, let's say, keep the CEO example, or a car buyer, car buyer uh, you reach them not when they are in the mindset of being a CEO, not when they're on some highfalutin uh, website about finance, or, or not when they're actually on auto car or auto trader looking at a car. You reach them at a, a different moment because it's often far cheaper. Now, if all you believe in is in the importance of the target audience, then that is a very sensible saving. If you believe context is something very important, well, by reaching that person in a different mood, in a different state, in a different mindset, then suddenly there is a trade-off happening. That's not to say that trade-off isn't worth it, but we're deluding ourselves if we don't think there is some um, cost to to, 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 to what we're doing. As Richard said, most marketing campaigns target audience segments rather than the context the audience might be in. The problem with these segments, like millennials for example, is they just don't predict much. Often they are developed by a creative focus group exercise rather than a hard analysis of data. After all, can we really believe that all millennials act the same when the group encompasses everyone from a 39-year-old father of four to a 16-year-old aspiring ballet dancer? In reality, past behaviour is much more likely to predict future behaviour. In other words, a person who was regularly late to work last week will probably be late next week, or a person who's in a rush is less likely to stop and help someone. This is regardless of the segment they may be in. To flesh this out, I'll provide an example from David Halpern's book, Inside the Nudge Factory. His team managed to improve the amount of people who paid their tax on time by 15%. The way they did this is by utilising social proof. They wrote a brand new letter 
which basically just said that most people paid their tax on time, promoting social proof and getting 15% more people to pay their tax. What's interesting is this nudge was found to be effective across all of the traditional popular segments. Millennials, baby boomers, Generation X all behaved in the required way. There was no significant discrepancy in how each of the groups responded to the messages. So are there campaigns that looked beyond traditional segments and actually considered the context the consumer was in? I asked Richard for an example. Often it's, it, it's, it's harder to see externally because you are not aware whether the context you've received an ad is what everyone else is receiving in or you're a one-off. So it's, it's, it's often more invisible. But some examples of, of times I've certainly used it from the, the, kind of the smaller to the larger one, things like... Um, you know, going really uh, executional now, but with we had a, worked with a, a beer brand a, a while ago who had um, humorous ads, so it's uh, cause cause light. And one of the things that we did was uh, know that there was work done by Zhang and Zakan to University, I think, of Houston. Uh, psychologists where they had shown that the same ad is funnier if it is seen in a group rather than if you watch it on your own you know possibly something to do with social proof here that you know if we see other people laughing we, we you know we get caught up in the mood we think it's funnier because someone else has judged it to be uh, amusing so the simple thing there is well when you're buying your tv spots you don't just rate and pick your programs based on their conversions to the target audience. Well, that still remains something that's important, but you also look at what programs are likely to be viewed in groups, and all that data is easily available to an advertiser. So, for example, films are much more likely to be um, watching a group than, than other types of, of TV. So, you, so it, it, it can certainly happen. Um, uh, it's often harder for external people, I think, to realise it's happening. So if you hear somebody talking about finding success by targeting millennials, baby boomers or even soccer mums, scrutinise their work a bit more. And when you're working on your next campaign, don't assume that consumers you're going after are constantly changing. Most of the time, they're pretty predictable. Unfortunately, most of us don't realise this. Way back in 1996, Anton Ducrane reviewed 12 studies and found conclusively that red painkillers are more effective. The red colour draws connotations with strength and power and via the placebo effect actually made the drug more potent. Now brands like Nurofen, Advil and Panadin spend millions advertising and promoting their drugs. So you'd think all of the brands would have taken advantage of this simple nudge. It was found way back in 1996. But they don't. Only one out of the top 10 selling painkillers in the UK are actually red. Anyway, that's it from me today. If you've enjoyed listening to Richard, I highly recommend purchasing his book, The Choice Factory. It's an up-to-date look at the latest insights from consumer psychology and contains heaps of practical ideas that you could apply to your marketing. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Nudge.